1: Russian cyber operators collect against domestic targets. More details on the Viaset hack. Ukrainian hacktivists say they can interfere with Russian geolocation. Spring for Shell is another remote code execution problem. The Remco's Trojan is seeing a resurgence. Malicious links distribute via Calendly. Johannes Ulrich from Sands on attack surface detection. Our guest is Fleming Shee from Barracuda on Cybersecurity Champions fishing with emergency data requests and lapsus may be back from vacation from the cyberwire studios at data tribe I'm Dave Bittner with your cyberwire summary for Thursday March 31st 2022 Citing research by Malwarebytes, Bleeping Computer describes a large scale phishing campaign directed against potential Russian dissidents. It seems to be an internal security measure intended to keep an eye on dissatisfaction with the war and to offer a measure of insurance against the possibility of insurrection or a coup d'etat. A malicious RTF file attached to a phishing email carries either a Cobalt Strike or PowerShell payload. Employees of certain agencies are of particular interest to those carrying out the campaign, and it's interesting to see how many of them work for either educational organizations or regional authorities. Vyasat has provided more information on the cyber attack against ground terminals that knocked its satellite internet service offline in Ukraine and in other parts of Europe during the early stages of the Russian invasion. The company says it's working to fully restore service to affected customers and that it's taking other steps to shore up its resilience. Those steps it's prudently not sharing, since it doesn't wish to give the attackers insight into Viasat's own defenses. Defense One reports that Ukrainian operators, hacktivists of the CyberPan Ukraine group, Say they've found weaknesses in Russian tactical battle management systems that render them susceptible to disruption by interfering with their ability to use GLONASS systems. GLONASS is the Russian equivalent of the more familiar US GPS. They also hint that they're exploring ways of directly interfering with Russian artillery computers and that they've identified some possibly exploitable weaknesses in those systems. This wouldn't be surprising. Russia did it to the Ukrainians a few years ago. During the early stages of the Donbass insurrection, Russia fomented and supported. CrowdStrike reported that Russian operators were able to gain access to Ukrainian fire direction systems. Russia's war against Ukraine has yet to spill over in any significant ways to other sections of cyberspace, but the U.S. remains on alert, C4ISR reports. And of course, cyber threats continue to be active in and around the active theater of war. Google's threat analysis group has published an update on cyber threats in Eastern Europe. Some are criminal and some are state-directed. Among the state-directed activity is an uptick in Chinese cyber espionage seeking to collect intelligence on the war. Sonotype and contrast security – report confirmation of the Spring4Shell remote code execution zero-day. It's a vulnerability in Spring Core, a widely used framework for building Java-based enterprise applications, and a proof of concept has been circulated online. Praetorian researchers say that the exploit bypasses an incomplete patch for CVE 2010-1622, which is an old code injection vulnerability in Spring Core. That affects SpringCore on Java Development Kit version 9 or later. It's serious, but as HelpNet Security notes, it's not grounds for panic, and remediations are available. Security firm Morphosec has discerned a resurgence in the Remco's Trojan. The phishing emails represent themselves as payment remittances from financial institutions, including Wells Fargo, FIS Global, and ACH Payment. The fishhook is a malicious Excel file. Security firm Inky this morning described how criminals have been able to abuse Calendly, a freemium calendaring hub, by inserting malicious links into event invitations. The crooks are using brand impersonation to distribute a credential harvesting link. Many of the invitations are arriving from compromised email accounts, which has enabled them to slip by some defenses. Bloomberg reported late yesterday that forged emergency data requests last year induced Apple and Meta to surrender basic subscriber details, such as a customer's address, phone number, and IP address. None of the companies who were affected by the scam are without experience in handling requests from law enforcement, and they all have policies in place to prevent this sort of thing from happening. But emergency data requests are a bit different. They're issued in special circumstances by law enforcement agencies when they're concerned about a clear imminent danger, and they can be issued without the usual legal and judicial review. So urgency here, as in so many other cases, seems to have served to lower the victim's guard. Researchers suspect that some, perhaps all, of those responsible for the caper were minors in the UK and the US, some of whom may also be involved with the lapsus group Others with the recursion team, and finally, speaking of Lapsus, the gang or someone claiming to be the gang, seems to have returned from the vacation it took after seven of its alleged script kiddie leaders were arrested last week. TechCrunch describes the group's attack on software consultancy Globant. Lapsus has pushed a 70 gigabyte torrent file in its Telegram channel that the gang claims to have stolen from Globant. Hackers also say their take included Globant's corporate customers' source code. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. As the focus on security and software development continues to increase, some say it's time to assign an official cybersecurity champion role to someone on the development team. Fleming Shi is chief technology officer at Barracuda Networks. He shares his perspective on security champions.
0: To me, it's actually um, for every department that has anything to do with software development or any type of operational components the champion's job is not in a way to, you know, block things, but actually assert cybersecurity practices, you know, what we call the best practices uh, in the very early stages of either design or planning. So it's less of a behind the scene person, but more of a involved in a conversation in, in a initial architecture of doing any type of digital work. So to me, for engineers, for example, Cybersecurity champions will be the ones that identify certain behaviors and maybe identify certain data processing, uh, you know, behaviors or software behaviors. Uh, even vendors that that needs to be used or maybe open source projects that's going to be included in the in the design. You know, basically have a, a conversation around that. So build up the the security awareness or compliance awareness. Sometimes you know it could be in a form of describing. Uh, certain security practices or policies sometimes could be also identifying the classification of the data could it be critical um you know in terms versus uh you know data that's intransient those type of uh you know conversations needs to happen early so the champion is job is is to nurture and really kind of drive awareness in the very early stages of uh, of the software development cycle
1: It seems to me like a a certain amount of diplomacy would uh, serve someone well in this role as, as well, you know, so the team doesn't see this person coming and say to themselves, Oh boy, here comes, uh, you know, (laughs) here comes cybersecurity champion, Bob or Betty, and uh, you know, let's
0: all run the other way. That's right. I a hundred percent agree with you. So there's a lot of diplomacy required or basically soft skills required to actually do this type of work and do it successfully because We have talked about this in the past, where security sometimes is viewed as a a disruptor in in innovation, right? So I think you want to innovate with security in mind, and that's what we need to kind of weave together and kind of get the team working together. Sometimes the cybersecurity champion could actually seed from existing development team or operations team where they're starting to build up that level of awareness and understanding. So you know, even if you do this early, there's going to be much more clearer path for you to actually get to get to market, right? Because if you do this early, you will have a plan for how data is processed. And you can also talk about all the open source components and, and why you chose this path because it's better for security and compliance, right? So once you have all those in place, actually the job gets easier towards them because you have transparency, you have information, you have... The ability to really kind of, you know, ensure your your legal department or your to your customers, you have certifications that you can get to quicker. So I believe doing it upfront is better instead of kind of just oh build a whole bunch of things and do some pen testing and hope it's it's okay. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Right.
1: How do you measure success? How do you you know know that the the programs you put in place are being effective?
0: I think that's a great question. Partially because. It's something new. I will say you have to really kind of apply it based on the context. So for software development, obviously adding security, uh, one way I will uh, uh, measure is adding security towards the end, maybe going through month and months of uh, pen testing back and forth and fixing things versus if you do it early, you probably have a shorter development um, cycle uh, to get to market, right? That's one way to measure it is basically doing it early. Having everything ready by the time you're getting to the point where you're doing the pen test and the outcome is amazing. Uh, we actually had that kind of experience at Barracuda, where we were surprised how how uh, how secure the the product is once it's done because we have applied security all along uh, from architectural perspective to uh, design to implementation to you know all the functional requirements and all the things added together. So, point there is that you can measure based on the success of uh, delivery of the software. The other one is obviously using um, metrics that you can gain uh, you know, along the way uh, from you know testing uh, security on top of like pen testing is absolutely still required. And, and from that, that point on, you, you just get to that agile component of the development cycle and hopefully security doesn't become uh, a, a friction for you.
1: That's Fleming Xi from Barracuda Networks. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to have you back on the show. Uh, Wanted to touch today on attack surface detection. What can you share with us? Yeah, so uh, one problem a lot
2: of smaller business and enterprises are struggling with is what are we exposing to the internet? Now, for enterprises, that usually means hiring some fairly expensive service and software in order to do that for you. Uh, but uh, for smaller businesses, there are a couple of cheap or even free options uh, that uh, you can use in order to figure out what are you exposing uh, to the internet.
1: Hmm. What kind of stuff do you
2: recommend? So, Actually, my favorite, uh, even though that requires maybe a little bit more uh, work kind of set up, is Seek. Uh, Seek is really an intrusion detection system It sort of summarizes everything that's sort of happening on your network. But it has a couple neat reports or logs it generates of all the known services it sees, new hosts it sees in your network, or also software, so um, software versions and such. It does that by looking at the banners. Uh, if you want a little bit a simpler setup here, uh, there is something called Security Onion, uh, which is um, a bootable uh, Linux CD also as a virtual machine that sort of has Seek and a bunch of other tools uh, pre-configured for you to not just detect attacks, but also any new services that you have. On the more active side, uh, doing occasional scans with tools like NMAP of your network uh, aren't a bad idea. Uh, Of course, in order to do that, you need to know what IP addresses you have. For Mm. a smaller organization, it's usually not a big problem. For enterprises, this can be a real issue. One question here I have also for people who are doing this, how you're dealing sort of with people working from home. Mm. Are you scanning uh, your home users occasionally? Because you know, the kid may have set up some gaming platform or whatever in the same network <laughs> that's now being exposing ports here. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have seen it happen. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but of course, the uh, there are a couple of legal and technical issues you may want to. Requ- uh, you don't want to take down the kids' gaming platform. No. Uh, <laughs> I know service level agreements with home networks are a little bit tricky there. right? And then there are actually some services that actually do it for you, like Shodan, Census, and RiskIQ and such, collect some of that data. Some of it you can get for free, some of it uh, relatively cheaply. But you basically tell them, hey, these are the IP addresses that I have, Uh, just
1: uh, send me an email whenever uh, you find something new with that. What degree of technical expertise do you have to have to use something like this? You know, I'm thinking of that that mom-and-pop shop who kind of sits at the lower end and can't afford to have a full-time IT person. Is this something they could likely handle? Maybe. Like uh,
2: Shodan and such these platforms are roughly easy to set up. The problem comes once you get an email from them alerting you of an exposed service. Mm. How do you really make sense of that? Uh, how do you figure out what you're exposing here? I would hope that a company like this may have some IT person that uh, is sort of managing some of that for them uh, on a part-time basis or
1: um, sort of as a managed service.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, Yeah, money well spent, right, to know a person to have on call. All right, well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks so much for joining us. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Urban, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.